right, John, today we got to chat with Dr. Todd Cashton. This was an amazing conversation. Uh, I was super geeked about this coming in. I've been a big fan of Todd's for a long, long time. So Todd is a distinguished professor at George Mason University. He's published over a couple hundred peer-reviewed articles across a range of topics having to do with well-being, emotional agility, relationships, meaning, purpose, and in particular, curiosity. He's also the author of three books. Um, I love his book, The Upside of Your Dark Side, which he wrote with Robert Biswas Dieter. But we also talked about his newest book, The Art of Insubordination. He's a TEDx speaker. He's just an all-around uh, really amazing academic, and, and he dropped some knowledge on us. So what were some of the highlights for you? I loved his arguments, you know, why we should kind of welcome and bring in negative emotions into our life and trying to clamp down too much on those as kind of obstacles towards living good lives. Rather, we should embrace those because they're important parts of what it means to live a good life. I loved his argument that curiosity is vital for human flourishing yeah. and yeah. why it kind of fuels, you know, is an important fuel behind what it means to live a good life. And I loved the kind of various paths he outlined as alternatives to happiness as the end goal of life. What about yeah, you? Yeah, yeah, I agree. I, I think our listeners are going to dig those as well. So stay tuned for the uh, the three different paths you might take as alternatives to happiness, plus lots, lots more from Dr. Todd Cashton. Hey, Todd. Hey, Nick. How you doing, man? You look exactly the same as you do online, which is good. <laughs> so do you, and and pretty similar to each other, I think. <laughs> uh, ter- terrifyingly similar, if I may say. So. <laughs> Although I, I will say, credit to you, I have far less muscle mass, so you got me go. You got me there. You won up me. Hey, John. Hey, Todd. How are you doing? Great. Yeah. It's a pleasure. It's an honor to meet you. Big fan of your work. Okay. So, Todd, let's dig into it. Um, John and I are both super uh, amped to have this conversation with you. Uh, we're both big fans of yours. You are a distinguished professor. You specialize, I would say, in a range of, range of subjects, um, curiosity, well-being, psychological flexibility, amongst others. Um, we're going to want to dig into a lot of those topics today, particularly some of the stuff around what are what are so-called kind of negative or unpleasant emotions, depending on the vernacular you want to use. But before we get into that, um, we'd love to just, you know, hear a little bit more about you and sort of what what your path has been and how you kind of arrived at this point as, as really a well-being researcher and somebody who's really interested and passionate about multiple areas of this field. Yeah, sure. It's it's great to be here. I mean, I, I love the idea of, of flourishing being the, the primary theme of a podcast as opposed to some very molecular level of self-improvement or yeah. beauty and en- beauty enhancement. <laughs> um I don't know how far back you wanna you wanna go, but I, I'll probably play with this and we can we can work with it, which is uh I was raised by my grandmother. My my father disappeared at the age of two when my parents got divorced, and my mother passed away when I was 12 to 13. And as a result of that, um, I was raised by my grandmother, who was already in her 70s. And one of the things about growing up is, particularly as a boy, as a young teen at that age, is you learn everything by the most inefficient process ever, which is trial and error. So... <laughs> I never had anyone teach me how to change a flat on a car. I never learned how to change, how to ride a bicycle, except by um, a very good fortune neighbor that lived near me. 
Um, I was, uh, I learned how to fight by being on the floor many a times with a bloody nose. And basically this, this entire lifestyle, it's not, it's not a story seeking sympathy or pity or even compassion. It's really just, it's, it's that I could have, I try to do the research. I try to do the work and educate the public about science of, to provide a guidebook for how to living well and how to be effective with your strengths and capacities that someone like me needed as a 12-year-old, a 15-year-old, and a 17-year-old because I didn't have the people, adults in my life to kind of provide that for me. And so that's, that's the real origin of some seed inside my head was there's a way of doing good to help the younger versions of me that are out there in the world. And when I got into college, I was basically trained to be the next Gordon Gecko, which is a Wall Street movie reference from the 80s. And I worked on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange because my grandmother worked there. She's one of the first women to work on the Stock Exchange. Oh, cool. And she taught me about... Yeah, I grew up in New York. And she taught me about, you know, strength in quiet leadership. She was quiet. She was introverted. She despised people. But because she was so radically candid, which was not a term at the time, everybody wanted to be around her because she was a truth teller. And if you know me at all, you know, that's kind of my mentality as I go through life is there's something valuable if you care about people and you're a truth teller and you have a, an assumption of charity and mercy and forgiveness and you just have this welcoming attitude, then, then the truth telling is not a bad thing by itself. And when I was there, I basically realized that I could make a ton of money, but I wasn't enjoying myself. I definitely wasn't using my interest and wasn't following my curiosity. And so I switched to psychology and my grandmother kicked me out of the house and said that you're going to make no money, which one of the ways of not making money is to kick someone out of a house and have them live from friend to friend on their, on their sleeping bags, on their floor. And that put me into psychology. So, so you, your grandmother, as, as you said, did not like people. And you basically said, I'm going to go study everything there is about to know about people. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Although I was, I was, I did plan to find the exact molecular formula of how to do this and pass it on to us. So yeah. Yeah. That's, it's super interesting. And I knew a little bit of that background there. Um, it, it seems to me kind of closely tied, you know, I was obviously reading over some of your previous work and articles leading up to this conversation and I came across the, the article you wrote in 2010, I think, for psychology.com about Thanksgiving, right, and some of the meaning attached to that. And it, it just strikes me as, you know, I don't want to turn into psychoanalyst here, but it seems that some of your interest in well-being and the role of negative or unpleasant emotion kind of stems from your own personal experience. I suppose like many of us and why we go into the field, but is that sort of an accurate assessment, right? You say no more Gordon Gecko. I do love the eighties reference, by the way. Um, so you leave wall street, you get in, start getting into this field. What were some of your early explorations? You know, what were some of your early research interests and how did those sort of evolve to getting to the point of looking at things like curiosity, unpleasant emotion and, and the like? Yeah, I, I, I was fortunate enough that um, I applied through a newspaper advertisement, physical, not online, to go work with Dr. Arthur Aaron at Stony Brook University. And at that time, unbeknownst to me, he was studying um, how people fall in love. Mm. And, 
And so I was a research under, well, post-bac research assistant working in his lab. And we were exploring what are the conditions when people are attracted to people that are similar to yourself in terms of personality, interests, and values. And then what would make the twist where you would prefer someone that was dissimilar, someone who was a divergent thinker. Mm-hmm. So you could probably already see the trends that kind of now you have 23 years later, where I actually have a book on this topic. Um, so this is my very first research study. We created a mock dating laboratory. This is long before Match.com and JDate and whatever else is out there. And we manipulated it such that you were going to be seeing the profile of someone that was similar to you based on your scores on a personality test that you spoke before. Or you're going to see someone that was very divergent. And so that was one of the manipulations that you saw this profile. Now, the other part was we told half of these people, listen, we've spoken to other people on campus based on what you said in your responses about who you are and what you aspire to be. This type of this person you're about to meet, is it a perfect fit for you? Um, it might not seem like it at first glance, but we kind of have underst- understood about chemistry and understand about what people are attracted to. And other people were given no information about this, basically the potential of acceptance and belonging from this other person. And we found a pretty cool finding. And it, this, this, this study almost gets no attention whatsoever, which was if you provide no information about the possibility of being accepted by a stranger in a romantic relationship situation, you prefer similar people. Makes sense. Like your primary need without any other information is I want security. I want belonging. I want to fit in. Mm -hmm. If you tell people, listen, this need, it's already going to be satisfied. We kind of know that this is not something to be concerned about. Then your motivational impulse switches. And all of a sudden you're like, you know what? I see growth. I see expansion. I know I'm going to, I'm no, I know I'm not going to be rejected. And people have this primary tendency to want someone that's going to basically offer new opportunities, new philosophies, new values, different social networks, and kind of with the recognition of, listen, this level of novelty through the lens of being in a relationship with this person is extremely desirable. So we choose desirability as opposed to acceptability. Interesting. That jives pretty well with, and um, I, I once interviewed Lydia Dunworth, who wrote a, a bestseller within the last couple of years called Friendship, which is something like the evolution and biology of life's most fundamental bond. And in it, she traces this beautiful sort of biological and psychological literature around friendship. And one of the things she talks about in terms of the three keys to good bonds is similarity, synchronicity. And that's what came to mind as soon as you were describing that study. So how did you evolve from studying essentially the science of, of love and belonging and social connection to kind of moving in the direction you've, you've really followed for, I think, the last couple of decades now? Yeah, so then I got into graduate school. This is, this is pre-graduate school. Um, and then I worked with a woman where we were studying um, the onset of panic attacks. And there's a small prevalence of people that have panic disorder where you have these kind of panic attacks that occur frequently. And when you have one, you're concerned about what it means. Am I having a heart attack? Am I dying? Am I having a mental breakdown? And you're also worried about the anticipation of another panic attack. Will it occur when I'm in the middle of giving a presentation or a job talk or talking to someone at a party who I am really attracted to and want to kind of spend time with and 
develop a friendship with. And so we were doing some research in terms of can we induce panic attacks in people and then what happens to them mentally and emotionally afterwards. And this work was interesting. I mean, you know, we stuck a Hannibal Lecter mask on people and we basically had them suck in 35% CO2 uh, level air. And it, it, and for a good chunk of people, they had a panic attack right in front of wow. me. And then, we, and then we kind of, as opposed to giving them a Band-Aid or making them feel better, we're like, no, no, no. I have 350 questions I have to ask you while you're in the middle of a panic attack. I try not to die. Make sure you take deep breaths every once in a while. And it was cool, but I realized, like I said, this isn't what this isn't going to move society in the direction that I wanted to. And what most interested me, and I actually have this written down, 1998. I wrote down this term, residual unsatisfied curiosity, and it was in a, my first term paper in the first class that I took in grad school. And it was essentially is that in the midst of experiencing extreme anxiety, we could spend a lot of time about the impairment. But part of the impairment that gets ignored is what are the paths not taken as a result of having this extreme anxiety or depression or intermittent anger difficulties? And it's not so much about there's a counterfactual. If you didn't have these problems, I could I could kind of pursue the career that I want to. I could pursue the social relationships that I want to. I could pursue, you know, the gym pursuits and read the books that I want to. It was more of that. When you close down and start avoiding, avoiding your feelings, avoiding situations which might lead to those feelings, you are not only clamping down on terms of constricting your life, there are also those opportunities that you forego. If you know that the exact opportunities that you turn down, they don't disappear. They sit as regret of inaction in your head. And I wondered, like, what's it like to be curious about these opportunities that are not taken. And that led me to think of, hmm, I want to explore curiosity as a potential antidote to uh, excessive, unwanted, anxious experiences. And, th- and that was the moment. You know, Writing about this in class kind of conceptually um, led to my research program on curiosity. It sounds to me like you, I mean, as you're describing that, I'm thinking, man, this sounds basically like anti-broaden and build, right? <laughs> And then essentially what you, what do you do? You end up sort of kind of saying, okay, well, I want to study curiosity, which seems to me kind of a fundamental example of something like broad and build theory. And we don't need to go down that rabbit hole right now, but it's interesting seeing sort of the, the relationship between these and kind of how the, the unpleasant led to this, oh, well, what does it look like if I study kind of the pleasant side of this as well? then eventually maybe you come back to the unpleasant piece as well, the kind of this dynamic of going back and forth a little bit. Well, I think you, I mean, I think you hit, I mean, this starts with, you know, Buddhism and Hinduism and Carl Jung, which is um, to try to understand why humans do the things they do to try to understand what makes people close the gap between their present selves and their ideal selves. You can't just study the positive. You have to be integrating the negative and the positive because they coexist. And so, you know, Barb's work is amazing, which is built on Alice Eisen's work, which was amazing about kind of the benefits of being positive emotional states. Um, But a lot of those studies are laboratory studies. We've moved to kind of studying sampling moments in people's lives, but what they, what they haven't done sufficiently. And this is no, this is no critique of, of Barb or Alice or Sylvia. Will you you just mention who Barb is for us? 
for the audience? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Barbara Ferguson is the founder of the Broad and Build Theory yeah. of essentially is that, you know, when we experience positive emotions, we have a different psychological state and it alters what our thoughts are going to be and what behaviors we're going to engage in next. And in the moment when we experience positive emotions, we have this kind of broadened, open mindset about what's possible. And so we really, we really have these quick, heuristic shortcuts about life is good. So let me explore kind of novel, challenging terrain and go in there and I'm going to expand my view of the world. Okay, so, I mean, this has been a fascinating synopsis of your life and career, Todd, so far. This is amazing. Um, And we've got so many questions we can connect with the various strands you've drawn upon here. Um, Perhaps actually we can kind of go through some of the things we'd like to ask you almost in a kind of chronological path based on your your research in your career, maybe starting with something we were going to ask about later, but this seems like a perfect time to ask about it, curiosity and your work on curiosity and then connecting that with your work on negative emotions, because that's that's also fascinating. You've talked about that so far. So on the you know, here you've been talking about positive emotion and negative emotion in the context of curiosity, but which is typically, you know, seen as something positive, a kind of a good character virtue to have to be curious. So on the flip side of defending unpleasant emotions, you're an expert in one of those more interesting pleasant emotions, curiosity. And the subtitle of your book, Curious, even suggests that it's the missing ingredient to fulfilling life. Could you summarize some of the research that led you to that conclusion and tell us a bit more about how we might harness the power of curiosity in our everyday lives? Sure, yeah. Um, Thanks for reading a book from a few years ago. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I I try to write them so that they're perennial. And I actually prefer if there were no dates on anything I write. so if you go on my website and read blog posts, um, even despite people suggesting I should date them, I say I don't because they don't have timestamps on them. Mm, Timeless. Um, you know, you know what, there's a cool body of research by um, Sophie Van Strom at, in the UK, and she talks about the three pillars of achievement, right? And so you have, you have cognitive ability or intelligence. You have perseverance, which has been remarketed very extremely well by Angela Duckworth is great, but we're still talking about perseverance and endurance. And then you have this hungry mind or curiosity. Now, here's what's interesting. What we know from the science is that people that are more intellectual, and a lot of this, you know, this, it's a, you know it's, there's a good genetic basis for it, but there's definitely some room for enriching environments or, you know, a malnourished environment that could kind of decrease the probability of you being intelligent, highly intelligent. Um, We find that if you study children over the course of time and they are high sensation seekers, um, highly, um, they find novelty highly desirable. They are um, less inhibited when exposed to strangers. Over the course of a seven-year period, you find that those high sensation seeking, highly exploratory kids become more intelligent over the course of time. Now, there's no evidence that you being intelligent as a kid or as a young adult leads you to be more curious over the course of time. Mm. So you've got this singular directional body of research that happens here. Okay, so that's, that's kind of like, uh, you know, one check for curiosity. Right. The second one, you've got the kind of perseverance slash grit literature. And what you find is, is that to some degree, the way grit and perseverance is defined is essentially it's the the pursuit of long-term passionate goals. Mm-hmm. Now, now, to sustain that long-term endurance of the effort 
to commit to a goal and to develop new skills, you actually have this laser focus. And that laser focus is the diametrical opposite of the soft sense of fascination and wonder that's the state of curiosity. Right. Now, one thing we know is, is that there's no evidence to show that by you being gritty or high in perseverance makes you more curious. But some cool work by Paul Sylvia, one of my favorite co collaborators and colleagues, what they found was that when you reflect on your curious moments, just, just, just a recall, you get a 20% bump in your physical stamina on a exercise task or your mental stamina on a problem-solving task that comes next, more so than compared to recalling happy moments. And so being curious leads to more grittiness or perseverance, but there's no evidence that, um, you know, for the other way around. So another check for curiosity. Do you have any sense of mechanism? That's where my head went. Like why and how, right? Maybe it's just too granular at this point, but do you know anything about the, the mechanistic piece there? Great question. So they didn't study it, but you can, you can go back a couple decades to Gerald, Gerald Clore's research at the University of Virginia, and you can get his work, which shows that when you experience a sense of happiness, whether it's recalled moments or online, like right now as we're talking, or after this call, when we're reflecting, I'm like, oh, that was a pretty kick-ass conversation. Um, that sense of satisfaction that you have about feeling good about your life makes you less likely to want to exert effort because you've already kind of basically checked off the box that life's good. I'm going to sit back. Yeah. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to eat some, I'm going to eat some grapes. I'm going to watch some, you know, some, some key and peel episodes, make myself laugh. I'm going to sit on my rocker. Life's good. Like, why would I want to change anything? But when yeah. you're curious, you have this motivation of, you're not prompted to sit back on your laurels and consolidate your experiences and your memories and what your life is about. You're motivated to grow and learn. And so it's that, I think it's the motivational tendency that's the active ingredient. Okay. So this, and this connects really well with something I'd like to ask you about learning in connection with your work on curiosity. So here you've referred to some of the benefits of your research on curiosity to learning and, you know, particularly the kind of domain of learning we might call character education. And that, then being one way of developing certain character virtues, such as, for example, perseverance or ambition or drive um, and also motivation. So I'm interested in your views on the connection between curiosity and creativity and positive and negative emotions and learning. For example, you observe that when we're in a happy mood, we tend to be more creative. And when we're in a sad mood, we tend to be more detail-oriented. And this seems to concur with, in one respect, positive psychology. So Martin Seligman in his book, Flourish, writes... Positive mood produces broader attention, more creative thinking, and more holistic thinking. Negative mood produces narrowed attention, more critical thinking, and more analytic thinking. And he uses this as part of an argument for why well-being should be taught in schools. One of his arguments is that greater well-being enhances learning. And on the emotional side of well-being, though, his argument focuses purely on positive emotions, that we should focus on ensuring students enjoy school more, and that's really what promoting well-being in schools is. So what I want to ask you is, given the importance in your work of negative emotions in life and for achieving certain ends and their role, say, with something like curiosity, what role do you think negative emotions should play in education? Yeah, it's a pretty, it's a pretty good quote. I mean, listen, Marty is a uh, visionary thinker and he's, he's good at getting concise answers to very complicated phenomena. In there, 
Um, however, you could add a great deal of nuance to expand that out when you think about kind of the practical implications. So there are these dual process models of creativity, which are really useful to kind of to, for your listeners and for everyone on the planet to be thinking about. So the quick answer is yes, you need to explore both and you want to kind of advocate for both in learning environments, everything from kindergarten upwards to grad school and being mentored as a 30, 40, 50 year old by someone else might be by someone else who's younger. So here's, here's kind of a, a quick framework for thinking about this. It adds on to Marty's idea. These positive emotions that we experience is a nice, is a nice psychological state to be in, to be open to the possibility that there are alternative views of seeing yourself, the world and other people. And that you're able to basically have this, this platform for people that are offering opportunities that you might not consider for yourself or you haven't considered before. To be in a, in a mindset where there's a need for closure or, or any sense of cognitive rigidity, what happens is you denigrate, you reject, and you basically have a repulsive reaction to those people that think in an alternative, in an alternative manner. Mm-hmm. So if you think about a classroom setting, what's gonna happen when you walk into a class? Well, hopefully, the instructor or teacher or facilitator is going to expose you to something that you haven't thought of before. I mean, that is the hallmark of the good teacher in some capacity. If you're in the wrong mindset and part of that mindset is the emotional residue of what you were feeling before you walked into that room, you have the, you have the position of being on a range of extremely closed minded to be extremely open-minded about this. So you need input. You need information that is varied in order to get to creativity in the first place. If your palette is only gray and black and, you know, an offshoot of dark green, well, there's only so many combinations you can make in terms of creating a painting that captures, you know, certain landscapes. Now, where do negative emotions come in? Part of creativity is also not just a novelty feature, but also can, is, is what you're producing useful. So in terms of utility, can I do something? Can I offer something? Can I modify something? Can I create something? Can I envision something that's actually going to solve a problem or offer a vision of the future that other people haven't even thought of yet? So they're not asking questions in terms of problems because they can't even envision the possibility that something like, um, you know, when you think of the first time that, um, you know, AI-driven AI vehicles could possibly be on the road with the rest of us. I mean, the first time that came out is you're not solving a problem necessarily because people can't even envision that's even possible to happen that way. Um, it's almost magical to think that you could be on the road and turn to your right or left and there's no one to even look at because it's just a machine that's operable by itself that happens there. Negative emotional experiences, the benefit is they help you persevere such that if you get rejected, if you are denigrated for your ideas, if you're not getting access to a platform, you have this motivational impulse to be pissed off, to be chagrined, and then to seek out allies and find another way to get these ideas heard. You go back to, you go back to the drawing room, not, not necessarily for the idea itself but for the marketing and for the selling of the idea and finding out like, is there a marketplace where actually this has a chance of survival? 
And so you need the negative emotions for the marketplace. And you need the positive emotions to get the input to have the creative ideas in the first place. Mm. I see. Okay, thank you. That's a, that's a that's a fascinating answer to that question. Um, I'd like, I mean, I'd like to explore various areas of that, but I think we should first of all, for our listeners, you've, you've talked a lot about negative emotions, and we've asked you about various strands of it. But I think it would help be helpful for our listeners to get your basic argument on the table about why negative emotions are so important, particularly in connection with a leading a flourishing life. And you've, of course, written much on this in your book on the topic. So um, could you elaborate a little bit on what you said about negative emotions, what your basic argument is for why we need to kind of embrace them or welcome them in, for example, in the kind of culture in which we live, which is so focused on having positive experiences and thinking really of well-being in terms of those. And that might connect with some of the things I've just said about, say, positive psychology, for example. Yeah, and, and if you would, Todd, mention the name of your book because, in my opinion, it's a must-read um, for anybody out there for the for the various reasons I think you're about to lay out. And to John's point, we come back to distress tolerance. That's what really stuck out in your last answer. No, no, no thank you, I appreciate it. Well, this is this this is with Robert Biswas-Diener. We published the book, uh, The Upside of Your Dark Side. Um, I mean, maybe w- one way of thinking about this is thinking about it with a, a few provocations. So you could ask yourself. What emotional state is best to reduce conformity in a group? Or you might ask, what emotion is best to detect lying in somebody that you've never met before? So meeting someone for the first time, whether it's a stranger, whether it's the first day on the job, whether it's being at a coffee shop and striking up a conversation, whether it's a first date, um, being at a fire pit, meeting um, the friends of friends, what's going to help you detect lying, deception? Um, What's going to increase the probability that somebody's willing to make concessions in a negotiation? So thinking about kind of negotiating for a higher salary, negotiating negotiating for your entry point into a company, negotiating with someone to be their apprentice because you think they're so highly valued, you'd like to learn you'd like to learn and deconstruct what makes them great. Um, when you think about these questions about detecting lying, about trying to get concessions, trying to increase compromise. Um, trying to make inroads and reducing conflict. All of these situations, being in a happy state is going to lead to inferior performance compared to being in mildly negative emotional states. So we find that being mildly sad, mildly anxious, mildly irritated in all of these states make you more effective in these others, in other, in other situations where you're looking for performance, not necessarily to feel well. There was a cool study done by Ken Sheldon, which has got no attention whatsoever. One of my favorite researchers. And we wrote a book. Um, we edited a book called Designing Positive Psychology, which I think sold 80 copies over the course of <laughs> 10 years. Um, it's big. It's a big book. Um, and he basically, he basically did a study about the Pacific Coast Trail. And I don't know how familiar you are with this, but you know, if you go on the West Coast, you know, if you want to follow from California up I, li- I lived in LA for 12 years, yeah. Yeah, so it's a 2,650-foot, six, oh, sorry, 2,650-mile hiking trail. And what he wanted wow. to know was, um, who the hell does this? Why do they do this? And who's, how successful are people? And how much well-being do they get from doing such an absurd, you know, why do human, why do human beings do the things they do kind of mentality? And what he found was, was that your motivations prior to starting this quest, 
I mean, it's a quest. I mean, this is a vision yeah. quest here. Yeah. Um, I mean, just think a 5K is is 3.2 miles. So you do the math for how many 5Ks you're doing here. And it's not, this is not an asphalt trail. So what he found was, was that your motivational state at the start, unless you were extremely intrigued, curious, intrinsically motivated, um, you were doing this for the love of the work itself, process-oriented, not outcome-oriented. If this was your mindset, you would, you would clock more miles, you would be more likely to complete the task, and you would experience more well-being. However, there's such a cool secondary part of this research, which is that, yes, that's good, but we sort of have this mentality. If you're a leader, if you're a manager, if you're a teacher, um, anytime you're in a group setting, the idea you want everyone to be curious and interested and self-determined now at the beginning of this project, right before we get started. And the fact is, some people aren't there yet. Some people are doing this because they have to. Some people are doing this because they care about the money. Some people are doing this because they feel guilty because they care about these relationships. So they're showing up for this meeting and they're showing up for this family gathering because they know it's what they're supposed to be doing. And we look and we look, we look down on these people as if like, it's not good enough. I mean, I've been told this by my family members. It's not good enough that you showed up. I want you to show up and do this because you really want to and enjoy it. And I'm like, listen, you can't freaking force me to enjoy something. You can, you can make me do something, but you can't make me enjoy it. So this research is very promising for this. If, you, if, you're, if you're doing something out of guilt or, or out of fear of embarrassment, which is called, the technical term is introject, introjected motivation. Right. Um, if over the course of the activity, you start to realize that you have more autonomy than you thought and you're motivated because you are an agent that has agency and you're doing this because I want to do this and I can do this. It changes over the course of time. That change leads to as high performance as people that were intrinsically motivated to start and you get more well-being from the experience. So this is a very important takeaway message is that we have to be less judgmental about people's initial motivations and do the hard work of be very cognizant of people's change in motivational states over the course of time, which is a hard thing to do. It means you have to really pay attention, get out of your own skin, get out of your own head and pay attention to other people. That's an important part of learning. Yeah, 100%. And it's interesting you mentioned learning. I was just actually explaining this to a client last night and walking through sort of self-determination theory and that whole spectrum. One of the things you talk about is in the educational literature. My PhD is initially in educational psychology. Autonomy, which is we, we believe this fundamental component of intrinsic motivation, is often sort of conflated with what we call internalization. Right. And that you move from a state of something being maybe not that autonomous. You do it somewhat out of compliance or pressure, like you mentioned, just showing up. But you can evolve and sort of transition to the point where you have this this uh, self-concordance or authenticity to it. And it becomes more valuable over the course of time. Right. So that I mean, the point you made just really resonated with me. 
Um, I just want to make that as an aside, but John, I know you want to take us in, in sort of a, another connective area here. Well, yeah, I mean, this is, this is perfect with, with where, I, where I'm interested to go. I mean, so the, I, I can, I, I'm very much won over by your argument of the importance of negative emotions in our lives and for leading a good life and um, why, you know, we ought to welcome the more into our lives in an age where positivity is so excessively emphasized. And, you know, we're, we feel, we feel worried if we're not feeling positive, you know, say 75, 80% of the time, maybe more for some people. Um, but I'm trying to figure out how we place that within a kind of a theory of human flourishing. So, so theories of flourishing going right back to Aristotle to the most influential contemporary theories, focus on identifying the areas of life that we tend to pursue as ends in themselves, you know, things we do for their own sake. And you've just, you know, given a possible example of something uh, that people do for its own sake, or if you like, the people who most succeed doing that enormous hike are those that just do it for the sake of doing it for no other kind of external goal to get fame, to get fortune, to become more fit. They just really want to do that thing. Um, now, when theories of flourishing look at various you know, ends themselves, one of those is happiness. And they try to show us how to attain these ends and promote them as much as possible in our lives. What I'm trying to figure out is how we would fit negative emotions into that kind of theoretical model. Maybe this is a reason to reject that kind of theoretical approach that we, we just focus on the so-called autotelic aims, you know, auto from um, auto meaning uh, self and telos meaning goal, the kind of things we do just for themselves. Um, so should do you think that we can build them into that kind of methodology or should we pursue a different methodology? How would you fit the pursuit of negative emotions into a theory of flourishing operating around that framework or would you approach the whole question differently? Yeah, great question. Clearly, you know the literature extremely well. Um, the thing about it is, is if, you, if you read Aristotle, um, it's a lot more sophisticated than people make it sound. Where his view of this, the idea of, and I like John, that you're going back to the, the process, process-oriented versus end-oriented approach to life, mm-hmm. is that this idea of the, the daemon, if I'm pronouncing it wrong, right, um, the kind of like the spirit of living a life full of character and virtue in action, and then the kind of this eudaimonic living, is that mm-hmm. y- you subjectively do not do not have the privilege of assessing whether you acquire eudaimonia. In Aristotle's view, if you want to stick to Aristotle, every time people mention eudaimonia, it was at the end of your life, there would be a retrospective. And it would really be the end of your life. Like at, at death, people yeah. would then evaluate with histriometric data of what you accomplished, what you did, and why you did the things you did, and say, hey, that person lived a life that was filled of virtue and character, and we can put them on a pedestal in terms of they did well. Yeah. And if and if you know if Aristotle believed in heaven, he would say, "Listen, you get to go through the pearly gates." That's kind of how this theory operated. Yeah. Um, it has been misappropriated, as far as I'm concerned, to match the crude assessment instruments that are avail- available in the field of social sciences. So we somehow take this very complex theory in terms of which which there's a very big question in there who gets to decide whether you acquired or on the path of eudaimonia so i'm agnostic about that for right now but we basically said okay we can't really assess after you die john and nick kind of whether you acquired a substantial or sufficient eudaimonia so we're going to give you self self self-assessment instruments and you're going to basically say 
Um, in terms of positive relationships with others, how am I doing? In terms of having a sense of purpose in life, how am I doing on a scale of one to seven? And in terms of a sense of mastery over my environment and being able to kind of override um, difficult, challenging environmental conditions, um, what Carol Riff calls environmental mastery. Saying, you know, I did Carol, yeah. pretty well on that. Or, you know, as Nick said before about a, a sense of autonomy, how are you doing? Um, that's not what Aristotle had in mind. And so I think we have to be fair and honest as scientists and being precise and say, okay, if we want to modify Aristotle, let's do it. But let's not keep saying that, um, you know, the philosophical error of appeal to authority and say, this is an Aristotelian model of well-being. In terms of negative emotions, Aristotle always had, at the, you know, all of the ancient Greeks and Romans were t- I mean, this is the, this is the origin of Stoicism from 2,000 years ago. So if you get Seneca or Epictetus or you know um, any of those characters, um, you know they're talking about is that negative visualization of like imagining all of the things that could possibly go wrong ahead of time is that this would mentally prepare you to be in the present moment and mentally prepare your armor. For the fact that you can w- expect to wake up in the morning and, and find ungrateful people, annoying people, boring people, disinterested people, self-centered people. I mean, this is the core of Marcus Aurelius's reign as you know emperor of Rome. Is at the minimum have psychological armor to realize you're going to confront these difficulties by negative visualization, anticipating the future. And in the best case scenario is prepare yourself to have actual weaponry, psychological weaponry in terms of, well, what will you do when confronted with these characters? And the idea was that you should start from a place of being present with a state of compassion. These are not words that Marcus Aurelius used. And then you're going to not avoid these situations, but you are going to live your life as if these characters are non-threatening um, and non-obstructive people as you pursue the goals that are meaningful to you. Um, so when you think of it from this perspective, negative emotions are not just elements and parcels that you might want to pick up on the journey. Uh, you don't even, you can't even construct the journey without kind of contemplating that negative emotions are a given, not just within yourself as you face obstacles and difficulties on the way of your own goals, but from other people. They, for and for for whatever reason, it could be you know their temperament, or it could be that they have their jealousy, their envy, or you know you've been mean to them in the past in some capacity. Well, that's, that's a great answer to that question. Just to clarify for our listeners, eudaimonia is this Aristotelian notion or ancient Greek notion, meaning which we'd roughly translate as flourishing or happiness. And that brings me on to a connected question I'd quite like to ask you here, Todd, in that. Um, you know, contemporary theories of flourishing and Aristotle's theory of flourishing argue that the, the ultimate aim of life is, is to flourish, is in the case of Aristotle to achieve eudaimonia, in the case of positive psychology to flourish. And there's arguments from contemporary happiness researchers, for example, the economist Richard Layard, who argues um, that, okay, positive psychology has achieved wonderful things, but actually we should understand what it's aiming to do is just supporting the fulfillment of life's ultimate aim, which is really happiness. And he might argue, or other people might argue, that negative emotions in our lives, the long-term aim of them is ultimately to fulfill us in the sense of bringing us long-term happiness by enduring, say, negative emotions and experiences. They can make us more happy in the long term. So they might try and take your argument and say, 
sure, we should embrace negative emotions, but really still the ultimate aim of life is happiness. That's what we're aiming towards. And negative emotions help us get there better by developing various character traits. I take it though, that you're uh, opposed to that kind of view, that you argue that ha- we shouldn't see happiness as the aim of life at all. Absolutely. Yeah. And maybe elaborate a little more on, on why you think that view's untenable. Yeah. Well, so there's a yes and kind of approach I have to this. <laughs> um, I, mean, I'm, I mean, at the core, I'm an individual difference researcher. And in a world that has started to embrace terminology at the minimum, perhaps at the maximum terminology right now about diversity and equality and inclusion. I think one of the problems is that we ignore individual differences, which is probably the most fundamental area of diversity that exists. Yeah. And I think we are very superficial still. And there's the assumption, which I find very unfortunate that we think that we've done this in a very comprehensive manner right now. We are, we are at, at an early level one of possibly 120 levels of understanding diversity. The idea that there is one psychological end state that humans are pursuing, that happiness is the end state, to me, is not only disingenuous, but it actually, it doesn't, not only does it not match the research, but it's also not even hopeful. So you've got a three-prong approach why I have a problem with it. Um, it's inaccurate. It um, doesn't match the research. And as a bonus, uh, it's not even hopeful in the first place. We should expect with so many motivational states that people, for why, pe- why people pursue the things they do, why people live the lives of the way they do, and our architecture, software, and hardware of how we're constructed, the idea that we would all pursue this one particular state is just I mean, I'm just going to say it. it's just it's just wrong. But I think that all for the listeners out there, here's just a couple of alternatives to happiness. You might be pursuing resources that could be money, that could be energy and vitality. Um, you could be pursuing the quality of relationships, but that could be about intimacy, or it could be about connection, which are two different ways of pursuing relationships. You could be focusing on the quantity of relationships in terms of. Um, friendships, romances, maybe you're polyamorous that happens there. You could be pursuing intelligence. You could be pursuing wisdom. You could be pursuing creative accomplishments. You could be pursuing um, a sense of coherence about yourself, the world, the universe, and understanding things um, as complicated as they can get. You could be pursuing cognitive complexity. You could be pursuing cognitive simplicity. Um, you know, you could be pursuing as much freedom as possible is the end state of living your life, like pure freedom. And I open this up not to give an answer, but to say is that we as scientists, we as thinkers, we as practitioners, we as coaches, coaches, we as educators, and we as parents, or just kind of just taking care of um, generativity for the next subsequent generations, have to allow more heterogeneity and variability and how people pursue their lives as long as they are not detracting from the well-being of other people. Thank you. Yeah, there's, so there's a lot to chew on there, but I think it actually in some ways can bring us full circle back to some earlier topics in a really wonderful way. Um, I want to comment first and foremost, because we mentioned to you earlier that we've had a, a previous conversation with Dr. Matthew Lee of, of Harvard and Dr. David Johnson of, of the Department of Education at Oxford. And one of the things that David relayed in that conversation 
was sort of these four quadrants of how different cultures think about flourishing, right? And sort of orient themselves to it. And I commented that it was particular, you know, personally relevant to me as somebody who's married to a daughter of Vietnamese refugees. And he talked about sort of happiness versus meaning, individualistic versus sort of communitarian. And it strikes me that what you're referring to is that when it comes to individual differences, what is what means happiness is going to vary significantly from person to person to person, right? Not even to mention how we sort of then measure and assess and conceptualize happiness. So it's, it's you know, it's the psychologist sort of like typical cop-out answer, which is it, de- it depends, right, <laughs> on so many different things. Um, you know, so that said, I still want to pull us back to kind of this thread of negative emotion. And I think it's going to tie into eventually talking a little bit more about your upcoming book, The Art of Insubordination, as well. You mentioned two things in discussing distress tolerance and, and sort of its overall relationship, I think, in flourishing or the good life. Um, one is armor and the other is weaponry. And, and I like those sort of metaphors here. And we, we plan at some point later in the show to have on Dr. Karen Rivich. Do you and Karen know each other? Uh, yeah, a little bit, yeah. Okay, so Karen, Karen's a badass researcher. She's director of resilience training at UPenn's Positive Psych Center. And it seems to me that what you're talking about when you mentioned distress tolerance is developing our own ability or helping maybe in the case of education, young people develop their ability to put that armor on to sort of withstand the unpleasantness of life in ways that actually contribute to a psychologically more rich life experience, right? And an overall range and satisfaction. And I mentioned Karen because I thought, well, one of the ways of of sort of developing weaponry is, you know, cognitive behavioral techniques and learning to sort of navigate adversity, adversity, excuse me, and, and reframe thoughts and things of that nature, so I'm wondering if, you know, you probably see the connective thread. If you talk a little bit about distress tolerance, why we should be trying to develop it, how that maybe plays with sort of addiction to comfort. And if there's a clear tie-in, bring us to the art of insubordination and why you wanted to write that book. Yeah, man, there's there's a lot there. Now, there's I a lot there, yeah. I would, no, I wish you were the guest of my podcast. Because, <laughs> I mean, I mean, just the idea. I mean, you mentioned that you know you're married to a you know a woman who's the, the daughter of Vietnamese refugees. I mean, one of the so the reason that I just want to just Paul just bear with me for one second on that um, very interesting data point that you threw out there is I think one of the ways to better understand humanity, and this is kind of like my plea for for listeners to kind of think about. Being healthy, healthy skeptics of the scientific literature because there's something that's happened in the 90s, the 2000s, and modern researchers is that there's there's a push for speed as opposed to quality and the in-depth investigation of human phenomena. And one thing that was in the 50s and 60s that you don't see now is this really descriptive qualitative research. And so one thing that I try to do with my work is I spend a lot of time traveling the world. Robert and I, Fizwaz Diener and I, my, the author of Upside of Your Dark Side with me. Um, when we travel, we spend a lot of time off the grid. We don't hang out with academics. We go on rickshaws and we go into temples and we go into monasteries. And we go into, you know, I mean, we're going to churches, synagogues and, you know, Buddhist temples because we want to understand we're the guests. 
and we believe in hospitality and we believe in kind of like letting letting people guide us as opposed to us guiding them and kind of following um you know what other people think is interesting for us and when you trap we've traveled to vietnam several times by no means am i an expert but one thing when you think about distress tolerance in the lives of people on the ground level first before we start playing with constructs like distress tolerance which is why would people engage in distress tolerance and what is the potential costs and benefits that happens there? And if you explore, um, you know, people that live in Northern Vietnam, even today and think about why would they endure the hardships in terms of financially and in terms of having a sense of independence in a culture that doesn't necessarily value independence, like dealing with the distress of that. Um, when you when you talk to people and you're you're around, you realize that it's not just to be happy, it's not just to flourish. It's that this is essentially the springboard for developing character as an end state of itself. And I don't want to I don't want to I don't want to um, confuse developing character with flourishing, even though developing character can be an ingredient that leads to more flourishing. But there's something about again about pursuing different end states. I want to be the person that is the most courageous, that is the most persevering, that has the ability to withstand pain because life is difficult. And maybe that's maybe for some people that is their end state. And if you if you get outside of the US and really, you know, these really nice kind of first world countries, you realize that a lot of people are getting by and that endurance is part of them just kind of taking care of themselves and their family. And they're good with that. They're not seeking, you know, Teddy Lasso on TV. And they're not seeking to watch, to be one of the people to watch Spider-Man because it did so well, you know, at the box office. This is, this is it. This is the end game. And I, I don't necessarily think that we want to quantify it as happiness and flourishing necessarily, as opposed to, I care for people that I care about. And that's the end game. And part of that, and part of the way of getting there is tolerating the distress of, I don't really like my work, but man, is it meaningful because I know it gives what I what I need to give and I want to give to myself and the people that I care about that happens there. And this gets to the core of the value of distress tolerance is that it is in, uh, you know, an intermediary state where I'm able to realize what I'm capable of and what I'm made of because I have these opportunities. This is why you have, you know, middle to upper class people who who work in boardrooms who do, you know, tough mutter and they're doing these, you know, crazy endurance marathon races and getting themselves dirty. It's not because they are actually physically tough. It's because nothing in their world provides sufficient tests of what their character is in the first place. Mm-hmm. And, and and so we look for tests of character. And and if there was any recommendation I would have for people of actually I have lots of recommendations <laughs> is that is that we should we should wake up in the morning and this gets to kind of you know the art of insubordination, which is the latest book that I wrote, is that we should look look for opportunities where I could stand in and provide protection for people that may not be in the psychological or physical state or have enough power and status to protect themselves. Or I'm going to wake up in the morning looking for a place where I can innovate because I see there is dysfunction 
in my local community, in my house, in my family, in my workplace, and I want to do something about it. Or I can view myself in terms of is that the way that I live, want to live my life is different from the norms in my community or that society incentivizes. And how can I push myself to deal with the distress so that realizes that I don't want to be married and I don't want to have kids. And I don't think that I want to kind of um, travel, uh, you know, with the group of people is that I, I appreciate my solitude in a world that really is telling me constantly, what is the number one predictor of happiness? What is the best way to live your life? It is always friendships, the quality of friendships, like the number of best friends you have. But for me, first, not me, me exactly, but as an, there are individuals that don't have this view. So if you are on the margins, if you have a low frequency distribution personality, and if you have um, a style of living that's outside of prototypical norms, if you don't identify with the political parties or sports teams or, you know, or Netflix or movies and you, and you like, you know, Chinese checkers and you like comic books and you like, um, jump rope as a, as a full-grown adult, that just the notion of living your life on your own terms, again, without detracting the well-being of other people, that is an act of insubordination, like principled insubordination. And it requires a lot of distress tolerance to live your way, your own way, knowing that you're going to get friction and static from other people who say, that's no way to live your life. That's not what the science says. That's not what the people around you are doing. So there's something that I want to kind of really honor and create a guidebook for people of there's a way to kind of carve your own lifestyle that is so idiographic, so idiosyncratic to other people because it fits your personality, your life history, your interests, your values. And I spent, you know, I spent 10 years trying to figure out what is the best science to say of how to basically find your own voice, amplify your voice, amplify the voice of other people so we can have more innovators, more defenders, more courageous people, and more people that are living off the grid in their own idiosyncratic ways. Awesome. Um, okay, so there's a couple different things I'd love to touch on there. Uh, love the answer. I want to talk a little bit more about the art of insubordination. Um, one of the things you mentioned that really resonated with me is sort of this, uh, this, it sounds like a willingness to develop distress tolerance when it's in the service of something more meaningful. And I heard that and, you know, I'm traditionally an educator. So I thought, you know, my sort of bias is a lot of the reason why young people don't love doing the work, don't love being quote unquote gritty, if you want to call it that, um, or persevering is because the work sucks. And in large part, it's it feels relevant. It doesn't feel very practical. It doesn't feel very meaningful. Um, you know, I do some work for the Flow Research Collective, which is which is run by Stephen Kotler. I don't know if you're familiar with Stephen, but he'll, yeah, the Flow guy. Yeah, that's the Flow guy. That's right. He will often say, and maybe this is not nuanced enough, but I think it really resonates that people are a little bit more willing to persevere and be gritty when passion is already in place. Right. And yeah. is that part of what you're you're going to get at in the art of insubordination or am I misrepresenting that? No, no, no. It's yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's you know, if, if you if you look at the literature on minority voices, 
right? So we're, not, we're talking about demographic minorities, sex, race, age, you know, sexual orientation. You talked about numerical minorities. You just don't have numbers behind you in terms of your viewpoint, as particularly in the room you're in. Um, and then, you know, just have a kind of like a um, status and power, kind of where you are. As, as much or as little as we want to acknowledge it, there are constant social hierarchies that we find ourselves in. Um, before this call, we were talking about how I'm playing pickleball. I just started a couple months ago um, because of my ruptured biceps in August, four months ago. I'm at the bottom of the rung of the male hierarchy of pickleball players. And I love being a white belt. I mean, I'm 47 years old. So the idea of I have a skill that I suck at and then I'm trying to improve upon, I'm just kind of figuring out every skill of every person and kind of adding one little, one little, little tidbit of kind of uh, style that I'm adding to my play kind of week by week by week. Yeah. That happens there. Um, so, all, you know, all of that's in there in terms of you have to have, you have to have some mission uh, to pursue. And the real, you know, the real crux of the book is that despite having the mission, the world conspires against you for you to kind of stick with the way things are is a way to increase predictability, reduce uncertainty. And it requires so much mental effort and fortitude to say, I do like having a small amount of uncertainty. I do like having a sense of stability in my life, but there's a better way. I see it. And I want to dedicate myself to actually risking my social capital, risking my, risking my mental capital, because it's that important to me. So, so you're right about the passion being there. So this, this, this book isn't about finding the passion. This book is about really, developing the skills so that your voice is not going to be obscured and your timidity, which is perfectly acceptable and natural. Can it be modified? Can you recognize that it's malleable? And then you can work with that to kind of become more courageous. And more importantly to me is that can we start to realize that society benefits from allowing multiple voices that have good intentions and good ideas, even if they require that you recognize your own dissonance and difficulty is that this doesn't fit with your worldview. And it's going to require a great deal of effort for you to change the way that you view the world. So I'm going to, I'm going to give away my 12 years in California here and referencing how stoked I am to read the book now. Um, I mean, I had a general sense of that, but I mean, there's, there's a lot of personal resonance in what you just said, like, you know, and I don't want to overly personalize this, but I'm I'm continuing to understand what the book's going to include sort of through my, my own lens. And I'm I'm often thinking about parent groups that I'm talking to in educational circles and what will you hear from parents? Education isn't doing it necessarily for their kids. It should be redesigned. It should be rethought. Too much test scores, too much grades, right? Some archaic curricula, that sort of stuff. But none of them want to get off the train. None of them want to play a different game. There's too much fear. There's too much anxiety. And I can't necessarily say I blame them, right? I, as somebody who does not have kids of my own, have a little bit more freedom to kind of point out what I think are flaws but, and, and you just brought this up, I was recently working with an organization to kind of come up with a, a talk around sort of rethinking education. And I found myself littered with fear and anxiety. What happens to my professional and social circle when I put this message out there 
and it lands like criticism against the thing through which they get purpose and meaning. And what, what I think I'm hearing is that in the book, you're going to dive into a lot of these topics and maybe give me some how-to pointers. No, no, there's no question about it. I mean, it's, it's designed with, you know, nice kind of recipe steps, summaries at the end. It's kind of kind of regularly gives you like, here's the big idea that I'm kind of trying to portray. I mean, I designed it of like, this is, I wanted to create a, it was originally called um, the Nonconformist Cookbook. Now it's just the section of one of the books where here's all these recipe steps for kind of what to take in. And basically it's, it's as simple as this. If you don't have the power and status, which is exactly the situation you, you, you just subscribe to in terms of not having your own kids to kind of be in the game and then recognizing that there's another way, but do I want to go against the machine that is right. well-paid, well-esteemed, and doing fine, but they might not be doing things the way that are the best interests of the kids and kind of pedagogy in terms of what we know about how people learn and how people can prosper in the future? there's, there's a huge risk there. Yeah. Um, so yeah, this, this, this was a, if, if you follow every step in this, it's a guidebook, you know, how to dissent and defy effectively. If you follow every step, you are not guaranteed of being successful because we can't control other people's reactions. But if you don't follow the steps in the book, you definitely will not be successful unless it's by luck and serendipity. Mm. And so, why leave things up to luck and serendipity? And this isn't my work. This is 60 years of research that I've synthesized together on this that happens there. I mean, I'll tell you my, my own scenario about this, that, which resonates with yours, where I was on the um, uh, university-wide diversity committee. And really quickly, it was, you know, I think I was uh, one of two white men in the room of 40 people. And, um, and already from there, you know, kind of you're, you're a little bit hesitant to say anything because, sure. um, you know, you've been instructed that your voice should not be heard. You should be the last one to be speaking, which I have some thoughts about that, but we don't have to go into that right now. Um, and so as they gave the de definition of diversity, I noticed that socioeconomic class was in the definition. Um, neurodiversity was in the definition. Right. Right. Temperament wasn't in the definition. And so I just raised questions. I didn't give the answers because I don't, I don't have the answers. There is no answer. There is no definitive, there is no definitive evidence-based definition of diversity. I just asked, why are we not including these in the category? The heat that I got back was so intense. The, the lack of zero, zero percent interest in anything that I just said right there, neurodiversity, socioeconomic class, and temperament, zero, like out of this room full of people was the silence was, I mean, you know, to use a colloquial phrase, the silence was deafening. It seems to me what I'm hearing in this example is potentially a lack of curiosity on the front end. And even if we were curious enough to sort of explore some of these other ideas around diversity or, or any potential topic, you would then need some of the requisite distress tolerance to sort of experience the cognitive dissonance you know, reckon with and wrestle with some of these ideas and hopefully coming away with something that, I don't know, for lack of a better phrase, might be more of a compromise or at least common understanding to a certain degree. Um, is that a, that sort of a fair assessment? Yeah. I mean, if you, if you want to break it into constructs, I mean, we're really talking about curiosity, compassion, creativity, yeah. And, you know, and, you know, and concessions. I mean, we have to be willing to make concessions from every angle, even, even with people that we vehemently disagree with. 
the odds the odds that we're at one hundred percent disagreement are so minuscule, yeah. and we have to really think about what are the biases in terms of types of people that we immediately go into defensive mode as opposed to curiosity mode from the get go. And these are things that you know cultural wise we can we can build into the DNA such that we have certain norms that we express and we are going to prime before we even enter into a conversation. So just, I mean, just imagine we could have one pagers before we have a conversation as a group, like the one you said in terms of, you know, thinking about with, with parents and educators. So here are the norms. I want you to kind of initial to make sure that you're ready to one of these before we have the conversation and little things like that, little nudges like that, just to remind you is that, the goal isn't for us to agree. The goal isn't for us to have a good time. The goal is for us, how can we find a better way to enhance the lives of the kids and the children that we're trying to educate? So as we start to wrap up here, I'd love to to throw out to you sort of our quote unquote signature question, if you will, um, you know, aptly titled or maybe not creatively titled the flourishing question. And I'm sure this is somewhat dreaded for somebody uh, as nuanced as yourself, but I'm going to ask you for one thing. You're giving advice to our listeners about one thing that you'd love to see them start doing, you know, this week to help them lead sort of a better life. Granted, whatever that might mean to them and their personal recipe, what might that one thing be? That's that's hard to narrow down. <laughs> I got you. I'll put your pinny into some walls here. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm going to play with the topic we've been playing around together on purpose. This is what I'm interested in. Um, I think people have to increase their tolerance to experience pain, broaden their tolerance. And my suggestion is for just kind of a take-home test experimentation to do on themselves is to really play with the idea of spending time with people that think differently than them without automatically rejecting them or discarding their ideas. Um, Spending time with states of boredom where when you're in this state, try really hard not to push yourself to seek out stimulation to escape that state. And just let you, let yourself see where your mind goes and kind of, you might find that with a little bit of white space and with a, a lack of stimulation is that your mind can basically process and synthesize, um, you know, just these incubated ideas that are bouncing around in there. And you might find new combinations that you hadn't thought about before. If you're constantly seeking stimulation and you're constantly avoiding boredom, you're really decreasing the propensity to find new associations and new possibilities that you've already uncovered. You just haven't verbalized or put down on the page yet. I love that answer. It also ties me directly back to a couple books I've read recently, Dopamine Nation by Anna Lemke, which really talks about this pleasure-pain balance and some of the neuroscience of constantly pursuing satisfaction and dopamine hits actually sets us up paradoxically to never experience happiness or pleasure. In some ways, we sort of raise our, our, you and I would talk about a hedonic set point. She talks about a dopamine set point, right? But the other thing, which uh, the other book, rather, which I think maybe you've already dug into is The Sweet Spot, um, Paul Bloom. Have you already gone? Yeah. I haven't read it, but I've heard uh, enough podcasts where I feel like I've downloaded the book. Yeah. Yeah. I think you would really dig it. This idea of sort of chosen suffering uh, was the phrase that I sort of heard there. Um, anyway, wonderful answer. Like I said, right on point with um, some of the themes we've been discussing 
so you've got the new book coming out, The Art of Insubordination. Release date is mid-February, I believe. Available pre-order now. Much appreciated. Very helpful to the algorithm. So the um, <laughs> boss day for anyone that does so. Great. We'll, we'll link to it in the show notes once we release, um, but I have already pre-ordered it. So I'm going to give you an uptick on the, on the algorithm. Uh, where can people find you? Um, my name, toddcashin.com. You can find, uh, you can subscribe to my blog, Provoked, and it's free. And it's my favorite way to be all my musings in any form that I want to with full 100% autonomy, which is exactly how I love to write and think. Awesome. Awesome. How about social? Um, yeah, I'm on Twitter, LinkedIn. I just started a TikTok account, great like saw. little videos. Yeah. Are so, your kids yeah. helping you with that? Yeah, the 15 year olds, they become useful in this regard. So at <laughs> one point they were helpful in tilling the fields with ox, and now they're useful for chilling TikTok and editing videos. Love it. Awesome. Awesome. We'll put all those links in the show notes as well. But um, Todd, I know you're a busy guy. Thank you so much for spending the time with us and for the the deep and nuanced and thoughtful conversation. Um, I know John really appreciated it. And this this is uh, a personal big win for me as, as just a fan of yours for a long time to be able to sit here and just sort of dialogue with you around these things was was really special. So thank you. Man, I mean, you and John, you guys asked really good questions. You were deep intellectual divers and I like getting 100 feet under, underground. So this is nice. Appreciate it. That means a lot. Huge thanks to all of you for listening to today's show. If you like what you heard, please share it with friends, family, colleagues, and be sure to leave us a five-star review. Uh, You can also find us on all social media platforms. Uh, We've got our own YouTube channel, and you can check out our website at flourishfmpodcast.com. We'd also love to hear from you. There's a survey in the show notes you can complete where you can complete any suggestions on guests you'd like to hear us interview or particular topics or themes you'd like to hear us talk about. We'd love to hear your feedback on that. So your feedback would be greatly appreciated if you could fill out that form. Until next time, thank you very much for joining us today. And keep putting in the work.